Welcome again to the Southwest Climate Podcast, Mike Crimmins, long time no see. Good to see you, Zach. The, the monthly, I'm doing air quotes, the monthly <laughs> Southwest Climate Podcast. Yeah, sorry about the uh, the infrequency as of late. I know, we'll have to make it a, a, a broad apology to our audience, but we really do appreciate some of the emails that we've gotten. Uh, it has been like two and a half months, Mike. I think the last yeah. version that we did was right before Thanksgiving, believe it or not. Um, we said last time then that uh, we had lost our producer and, you know, Ben McMahon had had gone on to, to brighter things. Uh, and we're still in that state trying to uh, find a way to continue this at the level of professionalism that that, that Ben brought to it. So here's my appeal to our, our niche audience. If there's anybody out there who is good with, with podcasts and has a desire to... Uh, uh, be our producer on a volunteer basis. You know, we, Mike and I can pay with beer money. <laughs> uh, but please reach out to us, uh, cause we're in the process of figuring out a, a contingency plan so we can, we can keep coming back, uh, and producing this every, every month instead of every other month. As it, right. yeah. the, the worst case might be an uncut version of Zach and I rambling for uh, two hours, which might cause listenership to drop. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm fighting against that because uh, <laughs> I, I do have some sympathy for our, our audience. <laughs> no, but anyway, it's been it's been um, you know two and a half months, like I said, Mike. Uh, so there's basically the entire winter so far that we have to uh, recap. So we've got a lot to talk about. Good to see you, and, um, and you know we we've been communicating. So I know you're doing well, but always good to uh, to have a chance to to get caught up listen to you as well about what the heck has been going on in the Southwest and beyond. So we'll start from the beginning. I'm thinking, Mike, maybe we we, we began at the last glacial maximum <laughs> 20,000 oh, years ago. You, you've done paleo work. That's You always got to lord that over me. Yeah, I don't know anything. I, I have a goldfish memory. I can barely, barely remember early last week. So. I could take us from the, from the late Pleistocene through the Holocene. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I don't think that's for this podcast. Probably not. It sounds like your curse. Those are curse words. Let's try to recap where we've been for the for the winter, and uh, I want to talk uh, about sort of the dominant patterns that have led to the observations of precipitation, snowpack, temperature, which we'll talk about, and then transition a little bit. I'm, I'm you know, I'm curious, Mike. What are what has been some surprising features so, so far this this winter? And you know, I have a. I've picked out a few, but I'm curious to hear what uh, what, what you have to say. And then, um, you know, as we are moving, marching right along in the winter, you know, I'd say we're we're on the the second half side of it. You know, we'll look look forward for the for the remaining winter um, and uh, maybe prelude a little bit of the of this of the spring and, and and late winter. Okay, so coming into the winter, coming out of another generational monsoon. How many generational monsoons are we going to observe? <laughs> yeah, that that term it has lost its luster with with back to back generational monsoons. Um, you know, no, but we we're in we we're in a, a good situation. But we had this La Nina event, the triple dip La Nina event. Um, you know, which is relatively rare, not unprecedented, which is what we've experienced a, a third 
La Nina event in a row. And, you know, the expectation um, based on that, which um, tips our scale. And uh, it's it's the best thing that we have to go by as, as a climate scientist. So, you know, we lean heavy heavily into it. You know, the, the expectation was for the classic La Nina pattern is dry Southwest and sort of wetter uh, Northwest. That's actually not what's played out, Mike. So <laughs> no, we have actually had a remarkably, we, and I'm going to say the royal we here, I mean, like large swaths of the West and not just, you know, Arizona and, and New Mexico or and even smaller Tucson, large swaths of the West have had um, a pretty wet and vigorous winter season so far. And it's also been 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 cold. I mean, I think if you looked at November, I mean, November might have been, you know, the first, uh, the only month so far where it looked uh, in terms of precipitation, where it looked La Nina-like, um, you know, it was relatively dry in the, in, in the Southwest. Uh, then December, particularly late December, that script flipped, particularly with some atmospheric rivers that came into California and clipped the northwest of, uh, sorry, the northern parts of, of of Arizona, New Mexico, and also like the mountainous areas and the and the lower deserts um, in Arizona were 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 above average. You know, in January just blew the doors off the. What's that metaphor? <laughs> blew something away. Blew the doors off the car. Blew the doors off the rain gauge. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> You know, and when you smush those three months together, it's it's been a it's been a really quite unusual winter from a La Nina st- standpoint, uh, but one that nonetheless will take. And we'll, we'll go over the um, the snowpack conditions, but obviously they reflect that. Um, and then, broadly speaking, temperature um, across the West, it's been a um, a mild winter for most large swaths of the of the Western U.S. It's been below average temperatures. And honestly, I, you know, I haven't seen such a, a mild winter spatially coherent as, as what we've had so far. And obviously those two things are, are, are related. So Mike, what stood out to you the most so far of this, uh, of this winter? Are there particular events that, um, you know, have caught your attention when we look at the big picture, what, what's the sort of micro version of that? I was poking around some of the data. And so we last talked on the podcast in the middle of November. And I don't know if you remember, so we had just a great monsoon, right? So July, August, September. Do you remember how wet October was? Wet? I, I, I know I can't, <laughs> I couldn't either. I was surprised when I went back and looked at it. We There was a lot of rain across um, parts of Arizona. So once we settled into November, you know, you and I have been for over a decade now talking about the effects of La Nina triple dip La Nina, uh, third winter of La Nina, you know, it's probably going to start to dry out and it's going to start pushing us back into that kind of below average um, precipitation weather pattern. And, you know, even the last two winters, they were dry, but we would squeak out a couple of good winter storms. So it wasn't like we scraped the bottom of the barrel, like some of the past, like really bad kind of La Nina winters. I'm thinking like 2017, 2018 was stands out in my mind. So, so November, November actually wasn't that wet. Um, I, there was like maybe an event or two and much of Arizona and parts of New Mexico ended up being maybe close to average for the northern parts of the state, but the southern um, parts of both of the states were below average to, if not very dry. So it was like actually quite dry. So we roll into December 
And um, I don't know if you remember this, but right around the first week of December, the atmospheric river story was really starting to come online for California, right? We were, they were getting hammered and um, there was events in November. There was events in December. Some of those events were actually, they would sag south and to get an atmospheric river to, to really hit um, inland to Arizona, you've actually got to thread the marine layer, which is that soupy air at the surface through the Baja um, coastal range of, of California. You've got to actually squeak it through there. We ended up having a, um, a long duration, like over 24 hours, if not 48 hours, uh, rainfall event that was very, very warm. It was like in the 60s. The dew points actually came up into the 60s. This is in December for, for Arizona. So we were above monsoon threshold for a couple of days. And then it rained like bananas over southern Arizona in a stripe a consistent stripe from like Oregon Pipe National Park up through Casa Grande and then up into the White Mountains of Arizona. And then it extended into New Mexico. It actually looked like some of the rain events of the of June and it flooded out Casa Grande. They ended up having in the wintertime enough, they had several inches of rainfall and then they ended up having wintertime desert flooding. So it wasn't the kind of flooding that happens when you get three inches you know, in two hours of a rainstorm, it was, it was three inches over, over like 24 hours. And then they had water flowing through the streets. So that one really, that really caught my attention. And it was, it was so warm. The snow levels were 10,000 feet and higher. It didn't actually do any snowpack. So that was like the first event that really started to put some precip down, additional precip down that we'd already accumulated in the summer and fall into the early winter season was then. And then then the activity, um, it, it persisted. A couple more events, they started getting colder. They started getting a little bit more widespread. By the end of the month, we ended up having a handful of um, really good winter storms that were um, widespread across Utah, uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and, and started to put down the big um, higher elevation snowpack. And if you remember right around New Year's, it was the, the, the holiday season here, the Southwest was cool, um, below average temps, and we were seeing snow accumulating up on the peaks um, all across Arizona. I am now remembering October, and I remember October because it was like, oh, wow, the monsoon is still here. In That's right. You remember we were arguing whether that was monsoon or not? Yeah, I, I do remember that. And, and you know, just adding some some data November in, in Tucson, there was no there was no rainfall at the at, at the airport in November. Um, you know, same there was a, a a trace amount or a small amount at the International Airport in Phoenix for November. Um, you know, as you got further north, there was a couple events of 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 of, of small amounts in Flagstaff, same for Albuquerque. Um, and you know, when you go all the way over to um uh, El Paso, it was just, you know, once one, one really, really small event there. So, so just to, to say that November was sort of that, 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 that dry month. And then, um, as you noted, yeah, we had like two or three, three days of, you know, relatively large, uh, precipitation amounts in, in December. And by the end of December, we were, we were close to average for that time of, uh, of year. And then, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking about Tucson right now. 
Mid-January was another relatively, there was three days in a row where, um, you know, close to a little bit under to a little bit over a half an inch of rain, rainfall fell. And that pushed us quite a bit above average. And, you know, we, we basically at, in, in, in Southern, uh, Southeastern Arizona, or at least in Tucson, we basically haven't experienced a rainfall event in about three weeks. Um, so since mid January, mid January was the last, uh, uh, event that we have recorded at the, at the national weather service and at the airport. To add on to that too, Zach, though, for January, um, it has been, you know, even though Tucson kind of, kind of fell out of a couple of these storms, we had that really strong run of um, wet days right in the middle of the month, as you noted there and, and Tucson was in on the action. Um, but that was, a, that was over a week of, of precip. So it was, it was precipitating somewhere in the Southwest for over a week. It actually continued into New Mexico towards the end of the month. And it's only really dried out across the Southwest kind of briefly towards the end of January. Um, we had another precip event, um, largely focused on Arizona, right at um, the kind of turn of the end of the month in January. And then even since we've had a couple of cold fronts come through, they've been much drier, but they've brought some flurries and some some higher elevation precip to um, Arizona and New Mexico. So it's not like we we got shut down. It's more like the weather pattern has continued to bring us those storms. Some have had more moisture than others. And I, you know, it's even like looking, it's, it's November, I'm sorry, it's not November, it's February 9th right now, kind of looking at the the outlook right now, it it doesn't look like it's going to shut down for the next two weeks even. So we've had a very active weather pattern. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember there being something interesting about that mid-January system. Was it a, was it a sort of, it wasn't a cutoff low, it was a, um, closed lower. Do you, do you recall? I remember. Um, it did. It was actually part of one of the larger atmospheric rivers that, that hammered California. It was actually coastal westwide. So it was from Oregon all the way down through the Southern California coast. And it actually extended down Baja. It was just an enormous storm and lots of moisture. And it ended up, um, having an initial storm and then another uh, low kind of dropped out of it. And, you know, we ended up having um, kind of a couple of impulses come through um, this, this mean trough off the West coast. So the moisture was there, the dynamics continued to kind of pile on each other. And it, you know, it was just a fantastic couple of days for, um, you know, lower elevation rain and just again, some really impressive snow accumulations across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah and Colorado. So in, in California, all the areas that needed um, some relief as far as precip and especially snow um, have really been getting it. I mean, and I guess to bring in part of the the temperature signal here, story here, it's you can still see snowpack, you know, outside our window. Like it's I know. Still- can you remember a winter where we we put on snowpack on the Catalinas and it stayed there for weeks? No, I can't. Yeah. I, I mean, it has been my memory of, of these seasons, like they, they, it seems to like be constantly rewritten. So it's like, well, has it, it feels colder, but am I just, um, is my memory just eluding me? Like, like, but it feels like it's been a really, and the, the, the data does bear it out. Um, it, but, it does. Yeah. Like we, we have, you know, so often what'll happen in the, the, deeper part of the Southwest and kind of Southern Arizona, Southern New Mexico is that we'll get these snow events and it will quickly warm up. 
you know, we'll get a ridge behind it and we'll go back up into, you know, 60s, if not 70. And that snow has trouble hanging on in those conditions. But I think what we're seeing is that there's there's actually there's deep snowpack in the Sky Islands in the southern part of the southwest. So it's been accumulating. And so even when it warms up for a couple of days, it's, you know, it's taking a while to actually eat down through a couple of feet of snow. And so we continue to see it, um, which is, you know, again, we don't see that. And, you know, we've actually had base flow in a couple of our creeks in parts of Tucson here running for weeks. Like that, that again, I, I do remember past seasons like that, but they're, they're kind of far and uh, few in between. Well, this is a really um, good sign for our spring runoff seasons. Spring mm-hmm. And we'll get into the, the, the snowpack in, in, in a little bit, but um, this is certainly a welcomed, um, a welcome sign for, for our water situation and all the impacts that are associated with that, like fire season, which we've, we've talked a lot, drought and, and, and whatnot. So uh, somewhat unexpected, not unprecedented, but, but a good picture. Let me put some, let me put some numbers on it. I'm looking at the statewide precipitation ranks and temperature ranks. Um, so this is for the November, December, and January three month period, <clears throat> statewide averages. Uh, we have a hundred and in this record from NOAA, there's 128 um, years of, of, of data. So Arizona, in terms of precipitation averaged over the state, uh, is 98 out of 128. So in the upper, you know, 75th percentile, somewhere around there. California is 117th wettest on record out of 128. So what would that be? Ninth, um, wettest on record. I gotta flip these. Um, uh, Nevada, uh, it's the third wettest on record and Utah, believe it or not, those skiers up there loving it is the seventh wettest on, 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 on record. New Mexico is sort of like right around average, um, a little bit above average. So 70th out of 128, um, you know, and then again, like I talked about in the beginning, sort of the, uh, La Nina sort of canonical pattern would have the Pacific Northwest, the anomalies would be would would be would be higher in the the northwest than they would be in the southwest if if I can say it like that and that's not the case actually it's below average um or ne- near and below average uh, in terms of ranks up in washington and 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 oregon and and also idaho and, and and montana so sort of a a little flip of the script a little bit but let's you know if you look at this spatial map of precipitation right like <clears throat> Like what you basically see is that atmospheric river um, signature across the West, right? Like it is, I mean, you can almost just see it right there. A few storms, um, maybe more than a few, um, but it's really a a product of, you know, you know, a three week period where there was just this parade of really juicy storms. Um, you know, that, that, that came in and dropped a whole bunch of rainfall and, um, uh, across the West, but a whole bunch of rainfall in, 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 in California. Um, so before moving on to that, um, so temperatures, we've been, like I said, uh, statewide average, uh, on the, on the cooler side, uh, Arizona ranks 39th coldest out of 128. Um, California is 30th, uh, Nevada is 28th, um, Utah's 30, 31st and, and 
New Mexico is a little bit above average. Um, so it's 81st coldest. So it's, it's more, it's, cl- it's closer to the warmer side than the, than the, than the colder side. Um, so yeah, so wetter and colder has been the story of the first uh, three months, like the pattern, as, as we've noted, it hasn't been persistently wet. November was on the drier side, but really in, in December and, and, and through the first half of January really, really picked up that rainfall and, and, and produced a lot of uh, rain and snowpack. Anything else you want to add to that picture, Mike, before moving on to snowpack? Yeah, you know, just say the probably one of the, the discussion points is that, wait a minute, you guys said it was going to be drier than average. So so what gives, right? So we, as you mentioned earlier, um, we kind of all in the climate science community who's, who endeavor to provide information at the sort of seasonal outlook timescale. We use seasonal outlooks. The official ones are produced by um, NOAA Climate Prediction Center. You know, they're state-of-the-art, and they really do leverage the state of El Nino or La Nina in the Pacific. And if we know that status in the fall, then that gives us really a statistical um, indication of whether or not we're going to observe wet or drier. But the thing is, is that's the operative word, right? It's statistical. It's based largely on past conditions, and it's not 100%. So we... You know, the 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 third year of a La Nina, it was weakening. And you actually don't, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing as a dance here to try to like cover us, Zach, so we can explain away why we were wrong on the below average forecast here. All La Ninas technically aren't, um, they don't bring below average precipitation. And that, that was the tricky thing. And that was always in the back of my mind for the last three winters was, we're going to get one of those that squeaked out you know, average to above average precip. And this has been a rather extreme example of that. NOAA flagged, I was reading one of the the ENSO blogs, pointed back to 2016, 2017, which was a weak La Nina event. And it was another crazy atmospheric river year. And the precip anomaly pattern across the Southwest looks almost identical to this year. Um, What's interesting is that that was a much weaker La Nina event than the current one. And so, you know, here's here's one of those events that when we do our statistical analysis of La Nina and El Nino events, it's the it's the little fly in the ointment that makes the correlation just a little bit weaker and gives us less confidence in that kind of pure like, oh, La Nina is going to give us drier than average conditions. Right. On the other hand, the last the previous two winters were La Nina's. Yeah, they were drier. They largely worked out. Yeah. So. It's not a slam dunk. It's not a sure thing. It's always about um, hedging your bets or, or you know. So we were to... right 66% of the time <laughs> over the last three winters. So yeah, that's pretty I, good. I mean, I have a hefty dose of skepticism when it comes to the, these forecasts. And it, it's not because I don't believe in the underlying mechanisms of them or the or the physical explanations for them. It's just that I know that like it's a complicated system where there's a lot of influences exerting a, some some forces and um yeah there's always a chance that it that it that it goes the other way but i'm looking at the spatial maps of precipitation for uh the last 2 years and you know they kind of looked canonical la nina right yeah. like right so last year um sort of the the really dry epicenter might have been northern california southern oregon but but across um 
all of Arizona, well, I'm looking at a, a map that's um, sort of spatially average here. So it's hard to tell the, the granular details, but Arizona and New Mexico were below average. Um, you know, and actually that, and then the Pacific Northwest, let's say the Washington, the, the Western Washington area and Montana and parts of Northern Idaho were all slightly above average. You know, and that is very similar to the year before that. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, and then I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at a, a map. I'm looking at the, the 20 strongest La Nina events since, since 1950. Yeah, you can find an, a, a, a few of them. 84, 85, Arizona was wet. You know, parts of 2008, 2009 uh, were wet for Arizona. What one did you say? Oh, the 27 to 2017. Yeah. 2008 were wet for Arizona. And which, which one did you say? 2016? Yeah. Six, 2016, 2017 was a week. It, pro- it may not go into the strongest category because it yeah, was. It doesn't. That's why I'm not seeing yeah. it here. So I'm yep. just looking at the 20, 20 strongest. Um, yeah. So even, even, you know, and there is relationships between strength and, and the strength of the precipitation signal um, that you end up seeing. But um, yeah, by and large, it, it, it holds dry Southwest, but not always. Yeah. I mean, like, again, for over a decade, we've been talking about if you correlate winter precip against the strength, you know, the, the breadth of the an El Nino index, you know, from strongest to neutral to um, you know, strongest El Nino to neutral to strongest La Nina, the correlations are about 0.5 at best, right? So that's 25% of the variance, which is, again, it's not terrible, but it's not perfect. We have 75% of the, the, the variance that is unexplained. Unexplained, right. So we got, hey, think of that as an opportunity. Like, well, hey, if you're sitting down playing Texas Hold'em, right? And you're like, yeah. I'm going to tell you 20, 25% of like, how does this work? Um, I actually haven't played in a long time, but like if, if I, if I could tell you one of the cards that you don't know, you know, like that would confer an advantage. Sure. Yeah. Again, it's right. It's, it's, um, and they're skillful. So over time, they actually do have an advantage. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to get your head around some of this stuff. One, another point I want to talk about with the precept too across the Southwest is that it has not been monolithic as far as Arizona, New Mexico, all being super wet. So parts of eastern New Mexico have not kind of shared in all this bounty of precip, which kind of makes sense, right? Because you were talking about these atmospheric rivers, you know, far northern and northwestern Arizona have actually had more precip than the rest of the state because they've been able to to catch some of the ones that have been hitting California Square. That has faded as you got into Eastern New Mexico. So um, Eastern New Mexico is is like in the last 60 days, I'm looking at a map here. They've only had about half of normal precipitation, um, you know, which is, again, they're not a predominantly winter season um, precip zone, but they're they're not quite um, hanging in there at, at the same level as we are. Parts of kind of central and Western New Mexico do better. And then Arizona as a whole, um, much better shape. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that that actually, you know, struck to me, um, struck out to me as an interesting part of the 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 pattern, and I, it sort of raised a question. Like, I mean, New Mexico, Eastern New Mexico, is sort of in this really unenviable uh, wintertime position. I mean, how does it even get? How does it even get rainfall? You know, I mean, 
it seems it like it doesn't often. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, no, it's interesting. I'm working on a project right now where I'm looking at precip seasonality across the Southwest. And I was, I kind of knew this, but <laughs> hadn't really seen it. But so you get there, the Great Plains has a springtime, summer precip maximum, and their minimum is actually during the winter. So they almost look like kind of a, a reverse Mediterranean climate where they have this singularity of spring and summer precipitation and their driest months are actually the middle of the winter. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, if I were to say who's been the, um, let me, let me, let me call up uh, my map here. Um, <clears throat> yeah. If I were to say, okay, so winter, winter time, where, where have been the, where have been the geographic locations that have received the the, the least amount of the the good fortune from the, the the rainfall and snowpack, and it it would be the Pacific Northwest and probably eastern uh, eastern New Mexico. So, and as you say, that's eastern New Mexico. It's not that that's sort of what you would expect. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt for it to rain then, but <laughs> it hasn't been. And yeah, so you're getting a Southern Great Plains kind of Texas drought signal um, creeping up. Um, right now. And like you said, Pacific Northwest has, they don't actually technically have um, much drought portrayed on the current drought monitor map up there, but they're running a little bit below average. So like Northern Northern um, Oregon and the Northern Rockies have seen kind of below, not terribly below average precip, but, but it has been below average. And just like you said, that strike from California right through the Central Rockies and extends all the way up in the upper Midwest has been above average with this strong persistent storm track. All right, so maybe let's let's talk a little bit about the the very wet period, the atmospheric river um period and that'll sort of take us into the the, the snowpack um conditions cuz that those atmospheric rim, uh rivers really um really dominated the snowpack signature as well as the precipitation signal. Um so grabbing some good information from uh, Daniel Swain's blog on wet, wet, Weather West. He there was a really um, protracted three week period where California, where these atmospheric rivers. Mike, I, I think you mentioned there was something like nine, or or maybe it was fewer than that. That's that's been the total for the winter. But another- yeah, so so just to add on to that, Zach is the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes. It's a research operational research group out of Scripps had had noted, um, you know, counting nine atmospheric rivers by the end of January. Um, you know, so in that kind of December, January period. Right. And so uh, Daniel Swain from Weather West, you know, sort of asked the question, you know, how unprecedented has this period been? Because it was a really wet period and there's some exceptionally large totals, some record-breaking totals. Uh, San Francisco and, and other parts of, of of California, and you know he came up with over this three week period, you know more or less probably four analogs, a three week period in 1995, another one in 1969, uh, another one in 1998, and 2017 as well in in, in January. So um, this wasn't the wasn't the the the, the wettest three week period on, on, on record, but it's, but it's up there. Um, and when you look at sort of its impacts aside from the flooding that occurred and, and 
wind damage and 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 whatnot that did quite a bit of and, and including the loss of life. I mean, I mean, these are pretty big, devastating, impactful storms, landslides, and 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 whatnot. Um, but just in terms of sort of our snowpack conditions, you know, in the beginning of February, um, I, I can do more up-to-date stuff in a minute, but you know, the the Sierras in the north, we're all we're like 167% of average. The central Sierras were over 200% of average. Um, the southern Sierras were close to 250% of average. On s- the statewide snowpack was over uh, 200% of average. I'll update those numbers in a minute. But but um, it's it, quite an impressive uh, amount of, uh, of water, Mike. And I'm wondering um, if you could just... Do you recall sort of how this system set up and 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 what might have been the the drivers of this of this parade of storms? Well, I think it 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 I don't know if we talked about this earlier, but um starting in November, a transition towards um more pronounced trough off the west coast. And it actually can be linked back to there's a bunch a bunch of moving parts, you know. So La Nina is in the background. And that still largely has dominated the kind of the pattern across the Pacific Ocean. And it's been evident in having a strong ridge of high pressure up around Alaska in the northern Pacific. And so depending on where that ridge axis is, you're going to have a trough to the east of it. And so it had been just in the right spot that that trough was off the west coast. And then that um, trough being in the right position was able to, to pick up a lot of subtropical moisture in these long filaments. So it's and that those atmospheric rivers are going to play out not in the mean flow, but in the actual weather events that are kind of traversing in the jet stream pattern across the Pacific Ocean. And so just plenty of subtropical moisture getting funneled up into these storms. And the the approach of those storms has been just perfect far enough south to to really hit square on California and then sometimes drop further south to steer the moisture into the southwest. So I think that's a really important point because before we're talking about like the 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 precipitation pattern not sort of having that canonical La Nina um signature and yet we're also talking about well La Nina did sort of hold um it was in that sort of background and so what we're seeing here is if I may like climate the the climate the longer term the average conditions actually did look La Nina like you know but the weather within the climate um produce these events uh you know in particularly in particular you know a, a stretch three week period of really wet conditions that overrun the precipitation la nina sig- signal such that it didn't look la nina yeah <laughs> so it's, so it's the climate the background is actually sort of behaving maybe how you would expect yeah but the yeah weather I, within that sort yeah. of Cause the 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 expression, the precipitation expression, the temperature expression to look a little bit different. Yeah, you know, it's and I I think the astute listeners will hear that we're having it both ways, which is exactly the point of this podcast is to have it both ways. So, um, Ooh, I love that name. Can we, can we having it both ways? Having it having it that's, always. It's way more creative than the Southwest Climate Podcast. It kind of it is <laughs> the climate science having it having it always. Uh, uh, that's the that's the first task of our new producer. It's to rebrand us. Okay, <laughs> we do. We need new T-shirts. Um, okay, but just to put a finer point on what you're saying, yes, you know. Okay, so when you know, 
during a La Nina winter, when we're thinking canonically, right, everything's behaving like we expect it to, we will talk about those atmospheric rivers hammering British Columbia, right? Like if you think of that pattern, and, and if they're hammering British Columbia, they can, they can we can have the orientation of that ridge axis give the southwest warm and dry weather. But if you can imagine that whole thing kind of shifting just slightly, it would drop the track of those atmospheric rivers south. You know, it's the same dynamics, but it's just like a subtle reorganization and a subtle shift of the dominant pattern. And it will it'll cause the anomalies to show up elsewhere. The same, kind of the same. You remember the, the Godzilla El Nino um, 2015-2016 when we were looking for our you know, strong storms to pummel Southern California and Arizona, the opposite happened and the whole thing shifted north over the Pacific Northwest, right? So there's just subtle reorganization. It looked like El Nino largely, but just a little bit of a juxt- a little bit of a shift can cause the dominant impacts to move north and south, um, which is, you know, you look at it in the stats and you, you like you're looking at all those past maps, you're like, the El Nino's, yeah, you kind of squint a little bit. They, they all kind of look, El Nino-ish and the La Niña's are the same way. They all kind of look at La Niña-ish and there'll be those a couple ones that are like errant. And they're like, oh, that doesn't look like the other ones. <laughs> Having it both ways. Beautiful, Mike. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right. So let me just do the 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 sort of big picture snowpack conditions because um, I think this is a really important story, particularly with what's playing out. If people are paying attention to the news with all of the the... The articles on the you know negotiations or lack thereof that's going on with the Colorado River and the the state of the Colorado River, right? Like we're in a a, a situation where the you know the the string of dry winters is and obviously the overuse of the Colorado, you know, has has put those the the water supply into dire situations. So we really need, um, and not that it, the problem goes away. It's just it buys us a little bit more time. We really need sort of a wet uh, a wet winter and we're getting that right now and, and it's also important to say that we need a wet winter that is not just slightly above average but um, the the runoff efficiency trend is also declining that um, such that um, you know an average winter snowpack no longer produces an average, streamflow runoff um, and so you, you you need to get much above average not much above average but but um, above average to get average uh, stream flow. So, so with that being said, I mean, um, it is a, a, a very uh, rosy picture. Uh, so I'm looking at National Resources Conservation Service. They, they sort of um, monitor these high elevation sites uh, across the West, a, a large number of them. They, the, you, you can get data on sort of point stations I've done that for all of the ski mountains across the West. <laughs> we'll we'll do the the ski report next time. That's right. I'm excited. Um, but then they also do these the sort of average conditions for for basins, and um, the the picture here is if you can imagine those atmospheric rivers, the signature of the atmospheric rivers, the precipitation that we already talked about, just projected onto snowpack. It's it's very much the same thing. So. You know, California, like I've already mentioned, um, a little bit uh, average snowpacks are a little bit less than I had talked about because um, we're um, a a, a week, uh, um, 
I'm looking at data that's a week later than what I was reporting on before, and it hasn't snowed um, in that time period. But still, um, you know, 150% of average or or, or above, like the Colorado River, let's say um, um, most of the Colorado River basins are close to 175% of average. So let me look at the, let me, let me get some numbers here. The upper Colorado River in Dolores is 159% of average. Um, the upper San Juan um, is 120% of average. The lower San Juan is 150% of average. Go- going further south, the little Colorado is 177% of average. Um, the lower green further north is close to 170% of average. You know, Colorado headwaters, so this is far in, into Colorado. 126% of average. So, so really good snowpacks there so far. Um, not quite as good for the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande headwaters is about 96% of average, but hey, we'll take, a- <laughs> we'll take average, honestly. The upper Rio Grande, so, um, the portion that's below the headwaters is, is, is about 100% of average. Um, the middle Rio Grande is 102% of average. And really the hinge line is sort of the Colorado River Basin for the much above to right around average. So when you go north and you get sort of into uh, southern Idaho and Montana and Idaho and, and Washington, it's it's right around average to slightly below average. But by God, like, uh, I mean, you have to go, you really have to go to like, I mean, I don't even know what this basin is, somewhere in Washington, Puget Sound. How about that to get to <laughs> low 90% of average? I see that too. Yeah. You know, like it, it's, it's a good looking map, right? So, okay. So a couple of things too, right? Is peak snowpack in the Southwest. So Arizona, New Mexico is March 1st. Peak snowpack for the, for the Colorado uh, River Basin, the upper basin and further North is April 1st. So we're a couple of weeks shy of March 1st for the Southwest. And I don't know, Zach, if you saw these, like the um, Little Colorado River uh, Basin in Arizona is 185%. The Verde is at 354% of average SWE right now, snowpack. Um, the the Gila further south, which again is, it can really struggle during some winters is 124%. And these are just really good really good numbers we have not seen in a while, kind of from the larger basin to the smaller basins across the region in Arizona, New Mexico. So just to be clear, I have, um, maybe we're looking at different different basin areas, like uh, maybe I'm looking at a, a, a smaller section, but I have the salt at 124% of average, and I have the upper Gila at 100% of average. What, what's, you- the, what's the date of your, um, maybe I'm looking at a, a a dated version of this. I'm looking at data valid on February 3rd. So it's about a week. Oh, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at February 8th. Okay. okay. You got the updated. So that's interesting. So they've actually come down a little bit in the little, the recent warm period. They have, they have come down just a little bit. Um, okay. Good call. Thank you that for uh, correcting me there. No, but, but, but the, the bigger picture that, that you're talking about, I mean, this is a, this is a, I don't want to say best case scenario, but it's pretty darn close to a best case scenario. Yeah. You know, and and again, like the temperature, the, the 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 temperature, the below average temperatures are an important part of this story too, because the the snowpacks are persisting, particularly at those middle range elevations, um, and that all bodes well. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so skiers, um, <laughs> um, I was just fooling around, um, and just being like, ah, if I had to pick where I would go skiing, where, 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 where would I go? And, um, so snowbird for Utah is, is at its, uh, it's in the 88th percentile. So 177% of average big sky further North, uh, Montana, 84th percent of average, um, Schweitzer, believe it or not, I, I didn't know about this until last year when I was doing some research on this, but that's in Northern Idaho. So that's like the only one where the snowpack is just a, a little bit below average that, that I came across. Um, my favorite one, uh, Kirkland, uh, Kirkwood, Tahoe, right, is at its all-time record, 100th percentile right now. Heavenly is 98th percentile, also close to Tahoe. Um, mammoth, I don't have like percentiles for mammoth, but, but it's snowpack. It's median s- snowpack for this time of year is, is about, uh, snow water equivalent, um, is about, uh, 20, 21 inches. And right now it's at 60. <laughs> so, so boy, if you're a skier, you're loving, you're loving this year. So, so good luck there. Yeah. Uh, and if you like water, it's, a, it's like a, it's like a good thing too. <laughs> um, yeah. Right, so like, so- I was just going to, I was going to update my, my, so my Verde, I'm looking at the same one, the February 8th is 269% of average for the Verde. Still not bad. I mean, you know, two and a half times the normal amount of snow water equivalent for, for February. So, I mean, it is in the upper, I mean, it's starting to come down a little bit, but again, winter is not over yet. I mean, well, it's, it's getting to be spring down here, but um, I don't know, man, what, what if we picked up a couple of more, storms and stretch us out a little bit, we're going to be in pretty good shape. So let's, let's actually talk about that in terms of short-term drought conditions, I think have largely been solved across much of Arizona. The longer-term drought though is, is still problematic. So the, the basins, the reservoirs in Arizona will, will do well with this, but I was looking at the streamflow forecast up on the Colorado. It does look like right now the, the Colorado River Basin Forecast Center um, their, their forecast made, this was made today. And this is for, um, Zach, you always have to help me in, interpret. These. I got, I've got this data too. You, you got it too. So are you seeing 117% of average at Lake Powell? Yes. Okay. Yep. So what do you, what do you make of that number? Um, okay. A couple things. So they do these probability of exceedance forecasts, which I think are, are, are quite handy. So, the 170%, 117% of average forecast is for sort of like the 50th percentile exceedance, 50%. So it's sort of like the, the best guess, if you will. There's a 50% chance that it will be above 117% of average and a 50% chance that will be up below. Okay, um, so it's the middle of the road forecast. Yeah, but okay. it's like, obviously, the higher that middle of the road forecast is, the better, right? Yeah, and, yep. And, and often it's a lot lower and I don't have the data for what it's been in the, in the past couple of years, but clearly it hasn't been 117. So this is, a no. Really I, I remember past years that being like 70%, 80% of average. So when you look at like their probability forecast, there is a hundred percent chance for them, like that the minimum flow, if you shut it all down right now, that the minimum flow, 
and I'm just going to use raw numbers here and I'll contextualize this. Um, the minimum flow would be 4,340, 4,340,000 acre feet. Okay. So just to put that in perspective, that would come in in 60 years, that would come in as the 16th lowest flow on record. Okay. So, so that's pretty good. So that there's a hundred percent chance we're going to clear that bar. Yeah, we're going to clear that bar or be at that bar according to these forecasts, right? Yeah. And they're pretty good. Um, but the point here is like in many years, like that number is that's our bottom, that's our floor. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's not even top ten driest. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. Conversely, like the maximum is is um let me see if i can do this quickly the maximum would would be the second wettest on on record so if if everything goes bonkers right and and the best case scenario plays out we're going to the the colorado river basin could experience close to the wettest or the most stream flows on, on, on record. Now it's going to be in between those two things. That's, that's yes. the important part. And it's like the best guess would be 117% of average. But I just, I thought that was like a, a good way to, to, to think about it. I mean, our, we have a much higher floor now yep. and a much higher ceiling. Yes. And, you know, these forecasts, they get better through time. And that's because more of, the winter has already passed where we know actually what happens. And so we can be, we, we, we don't have to sort of do statistics for the, the unknown period, or we, we have to do statistics for a, a, a smaller duration of that unknown period um, because we just get further on um, in, in, in the season. So, yeah. So uh, the stream flow forecasts are um, again, they reflect, you know, a pretty widespread above average, conditions uh, across our our high country in the in, in the west and that that's a, that's a really good sign and again i just want to emphasize like p- particularly for our student listeners who pay attention to the water story which is an important water story and all the negotiations that are going on like like it doesn't solve that problem no so, <laughs> yes yeah. so that's like a, a key that i read i thought read this yesterday that was really interesting is that there's no expectation for much change in Lake Mead's level this year because the idea is that they're going to refill. It's not totally solved yet, but they were going to refill Powell first. Yeah, yeah. There's like a Byzantine way that these uh, reservoirs all manage each other. They're all yeah. like then it's it's very piped, plumbed system, and I don't quite understand all the nuances, but. But the the main feature of the the water supply situation is just that like we're historically drawing we're drawing more water. There's more water allocated than like is in the river under normal conditions. Yeah, and so you'd basically for the problem to go away, you'd you'd almost have to have the opposite situation that we had for the last twenty years happen for the next twenty years. I know, isn't that so? That gets your head around is like we've got to do this winter probably five more times yeah. in a row. Yeah. And if that's, if that's not happening. No, it's not happening. But, but what I think it, what I think it does do, and maybe this is a good or bad thing. And I don't know the people that, you know, do these negotiations for a living can chime in. Cause sometimes it's really 
it's really important to have people's backs against the wall where they actually have to make a decision. And so For sure, yeah. this may cause a little bit of the temporal anxiety to alleviate itself. And maybe that maybe that allows for a, a, a few more months of, of, of negotiation. I have no idea. I mean, I do know that that this is high stakes kind of stuff. And yeah, so I'll, I'll leave I, it to those experts to deal with it. But I felt like there was there was so much like cosmic Murphy law sort of like at play here was like, of course, you're going to end up having a wet winter at the crisis point just to be <laughs> confused, just to confuse and distract. Because I think we've been over overdrawing on the river and those reservoir levels reflect that for a couple of decades. Well, all of the decades. And then we've had the drought on top of it. And we've had the effect of climate change and the runoff efficiency is that this winter is fantastic and is going to do a lot of good for a lot of the landscapes. It's going to help some of the smaller reservoirs that are much more, they fluctuate much more greatly, but the big ones, it's, it's a drop in the bucket largely, (laughs) quite honestly. Yeah. You know, as you're talking it, it made me think of some of the conversations that I've overheard or overseen on, on Twitter um, related to the, to the drought, which you brought up before. And maybe it's just worth contextualizing this wet winter in the context of drought. As you mentioned before, we've, we've seen a, a pretty, a pretty good amelioration, as they say, uh, yeah. improvement of drought conditions uh, over the over the west um just in the in this winter alone but also you know from the generational mike uh mon- mon- monsoon that we saw um but uh, that's maybe reflecting sort of a, a one time scale of of the drought and the, the the longer persistent drought that exerts impacts um, it's, it's, it's probably still there. Um, I don't know if you have any, anything else that you need to contextualize the, um, the current drought situation with maybe, maybe I'll say one more thing, which is, you know, I, I, I think you'd, if you look at a time series of drought a- across the West from the U S drought monitor, um, you know, there's these periodic periods, periodic periods, there's these there's these periods of, of really heightened drought conditions. And, and we've, we've been in one probably since um, early spring of 2020. And, you know, that peaked maybe around early winter 2021. And we've sort of been descending a little bit um, um, since then in terms of like drought coverage, both in terms of the severity and just in terms of its, um, it's aerial coverage. Um, so we're, we're sort of, there's still a lot of drought present, like across the West, there's, um, you know, 35% of, of the West is, is painted with a moderate drought. Um, um, so there's uh, at least a moderate drought. So there's, there's still pretty widespread, um, drought, but it's a better, it's a better situation than it has been since, uh, early 2020. Um, yeah, I, you know, and again, like Arizona, we've got two seasons of precip and we've been, you know, crushing it with summer precip for two, two years in a row. And the winters have been not great. 
um, not the driest in record. They bumped along. They've been below average. But we've now then we put together a wet summer and a wet fall and a wet winter in sequence. We haven't done that in a long time. So to me, that feels like it solved a lot of short-term drought problems. And if it's anything, it's longer-term drought. But then even then, the longer-term drought starts to fade away. And, you know, I'm looking at the drought monitor map, and there's a lot of areas under, like, severe to extreme drought that have just gotten hammered with precip this winter. I got to believe that map is on the move and that, you know, we're turning a little bit of a corner here. I mean, it could all go to hell again, right? (laughs) I don't know. We've put a little bit of money in the bank here um, with some of the recent precip here in the Southwest, especially. Great news. You know, I love talking about the extremes, you know? Yeah, it has really been interesting. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how much do you think the the drought story as reflected in these maps and the conversations behind these maps, like, are keying into the the, the temperature story of the West? Or is it mainly driven by r- rainfall? Because um, I want to talk a little bit about the temperature. Yeah. So you're saying if you look at the drop monitor map, how much of it is actually temperature? Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, is like l- we've had generally cooler, more mild conditions this winter. And like you could envision the same amount of rainfall uh, falling under background conditions that were that were warmer. And 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 that might I guess it's the winter season. So the, there's two questions here. One is, does the the slightly ele- does slightly elevated temperatures in winter dampen the improvements that otherwise would come from uh, a really wet or or not so much? You 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 sort of grimace. Yeah. Well, no, I'm thinking. I don't know if if we often have the sensitivity in some of our metrics or even the way that we draw drought maps to to know that nuance. Okay, so like this winter we were talking about earlier, we had a very, very heavy rain event in December with very, very high snow levels. And those are actually, they can be common during El Nino years. So you can end up having a lot of precipitation without snowpack. So is that useful, effective precipitation? I don't know. I mean, it it, it is for some locations that don't rely on snowpack. But if you're building snowpack through the winter, and you have less of it, then you can, and this is the concept that's come out in the drought community is called snow drought, you know, where we can end up having precip maps look fine, but you actually don't have snowpack reflected in them. And that snow, that snowpack is important because it is a water management tool to actually extend into the dry season later in the spring. So, and then there's, I mean, there is the, the thing too about you can have wet winters, good soil moisture recharge, no very little snowpack. Um, that are effective as long as you don't have periods of intense high temperatures with lots of sun that would actually evaporate out a lot of that too. So I don't, I mean, I don't know, man, like our tools are a bit clunky to get at some of this nuance. You know, they're really good at precip anomalies and temperature anomalies, but putting them together into actual like soil moisture indices, eh, they get a little bit. Yeah. I guess I was thinking about like some of those, those those pre- those those indices out there like the um SPEI, I'm forgetting the name, the the, the That's standard, right. uh evapotranspir uh standardized precipitation evapotranspiration index, right? Which which I think I got that right. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. You're right. Which, which try to wrap in both the yeah, and you're sort of you're sort Yeah, of, yeah. Uh, I worked with a grad student, right? Um recently, Trevor McKellar 
and we're working to get a paper out, but um, he modeled soil moisture uh, across the Southwest. So this is not Northern Rockies, not California, it's Southwest. So our, our, our regime, and he created uh, actual soil moisture time series through a model because we don't have long records. He's got like 40 years of daily soil moisture modeled across the Southwest. And then what we did is we actually calculated drought indices, standardized precipitation index, just precip, and then SPEI, standardized precipitation that minus evaporation, evapotranspiration index. We didn't find much difference actually between SPI and SPI. <laughs> um, they correlate a lot. And sometimes the, the temperature-based indices, depending on how they actually bring temperature in to estimate ET, can overdo it or underdo it. So they don't actually reflect land surface drying or wetting. So it's it's tough. You know, we use these simple indices to try to get the temperature aspect, and I'm not sure we get it right much of the time. Well, that's good. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about um, temperature because uh, there's been a few cases this this winter, and particularly in particular in the East Coast. You know, we we've heard these like really severe outbreaks of of cold. We've heard things like sudden stratospheric warming and uh, polar vortex like always comes into play. We also had one earlier in the winter for us, like not for us, not for us in the Southwest, but for us in the West, like I'm recalling um, like a really frigid cold front that that passed through like the Northern Rockies. I think it was in December. Yeah, December. And I'm just curious like um, about sort of the, you know, the wintertime temperature can be driven by you know changes in 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 the in the pressure gradients in the northern latitudes. You know, sometimes um, you, people might hear Arctic oscillation or North Atlantic um, oscillation (NAO). Um, and so, ha- what what's what's been the story there, Mike? And it, has that been um, has that been something that uh, you've been paying attention to? Yeah. So, so you're not saying connect that to drought. You're just kind of Interesting oh, I, with the, the temperature variability. I've moved beyond drought. Okay. <laughs> I, let me let me let me clean that up though. I was no, no, I'm good. I, I think I got it. I was initially thinking about temperature um related to drought in, in terms of like yeah. because it's colder, like has that somehow led to you know more useful rain, which I think you you talked about in the and the nu- nuance of that. You know, in the summertime, the corollary is right? Like when we have hotter conditions, just the rainfall that falls does less work because it gets evaporated sooner, you know? And, 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 and then the winter, you know, if you have cooler temperatures, particularly at the mid elevations, you know, the snow is able to stay on the landscape longer. And so the soils, the soil moisture can, 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 can become um, more saturated in, in, in the springtime because the, the snowpack is more persistent. So there is a relationship there, but, I, but maybe our, our our metrics aren't that sensitive yet. So that was the, the sort of connection I was trying to make with, with drought. Yeah. Now I'm moving on to thinking about like, because one of the surprising features for me um, this winter has really been the, 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 the relatively mild cold conditions uh, across um, a large part of the, of the West. And we've also seen um, events uh, in the northeast, and again up in up in Montana, where we had these really ar- Arctic cold outbreaks, um, yep. 
that can do quite a bit of, uh, of, uh, of damage, if not, you know, you know, leads to, to deaths and, and, and whatnot. So I'm just curious, have you been paying attention to the, to the t- temperature part of this? Yeah, totally. I'll do a little cleanup on my own here. So I'll clean up the drought and I'm going to move to the, the, I'll do the drought temperature to the temperature temperature. The drought temperature, again, just like you said, Zach, is like, yeah, cooler temperatures lead to lower levels of evapotranspiration, lead to, you know, this kind of nebulous term of effective precipitation. It's just this idea of like, when it rains, is it actually going into the soil as a recharging soil? Can it turn into base flow and streams? Does it turn into water resources? Higher temperatures tend to have more atmospheric thirst drop back out. There are there are tools coming online. We're using more and more. There's one called the Evaporative Demand Drought Index. It's called Eddy, affectionately known as Eddy, and um, it's doing a better job at really a sophisticated way of of tracking evapotranspiration throughout the year. And you can kind of see, you know, at shorter time scales of like, was this an effective period with precipitation, or was it followed by a time when the weather pattern shifted and it got actually windy? dry and maybe it wasn't even warm but just windy and dry by itself it has the ability to pull that moisture back out of the soil um and this varies throughout the year too it's high sun angle and stuff like that so and again if anybody's really interested the drought.gov site um has gone through a couple of iterations got really nice interfaces and tools to quickly see a lot of this stuff so I, i really recommend checking it out so the temperature variability of this winter has been really interesting too in We've talked in the past about something called the Arctic Oscillation, which is an index that basically measures how bottled up the really cold polar air around the North Pole is. If it's really tightly held um, in check by the polar jet stream, that's a positive Arctic Oscillation. And then if it um, if that weakens and that cold polar air is allowed to um, spill south all around the Northern Hemisphere, through because of a weakening of the polar jet, we call that a negative AO. So this has been the winter of negative AO largely. And it, it's it's kind of followed in suit since late November, kind of gone up and down, but persisted largely negative in December and January. And, and Noah noted that um, the most negative uh, AO value in December since 1950 was actually recorded. So it was very negative, meaning that there was sloppy cold polar air kind of spilling down to lower latitudes all over the place. And I think I read, although I could have read it incorrectly, that December the average AO in December was the 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 most negative on record. That's what I read too. Yeah. So I mean so it was it's clearly and one of so again if you if you can imagine that that cold polar air is not being held tightly up around the poles and it is allowed to spill south then you can have these cold air outbreaks, which we have seen several times. Um, they've happened all over the world, but they've happened in the continental U.S. And it, Zach, you alluded to this this record cold front that occurred that was related to this negative AL occurred in right before Christmas, if not over Christmas, where a cold front, which was you know literally was this just heavy cold pool of air out of Canada, started to barrel towards the southeast on the the east side of the um, continental divide. And there were places, this is actually common in the Northern Rockies all the way down to the front range, like through Colorado, where you can have these um, fairly warm temperatures, you know, maybe in the forties and then have the temperature drop 30, 40, 50 degrees Fahrenheit over a matter of hours. And I was telling you, Zach, earlier, I read that in, I think it was in Laramie, Wyoming, 
the temperature dropped from 42 degrees Fahrenheit to negative nine in two hours. This happened in Boulder. There were people talking about, you know, watching, literally watching mercury thermometers like drop, (laughs) which you shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to see in real time. So yeah, it was really quite fascinating. And some of this cold air that spills down the front range will sometimes work its way back east in these strong easterly wind events across New Mexico and uh, Arizona because it's cold, heavy air and we're higher elevation and it's trying to work its way back to the ocean. So we're actually going to have an, a wind event tomorrow, Zach, kind of similar, cold air coming down the front range. It's going to work its way back towards the east. It's going to spill through all of our passes. I was going to go for a bike ride uh, tomorrow, Zach, through Reddington Pass. No way, because it's going to have a 40 mile an hour <laughs> headwind. And that air is trying to go down to the Colorado River Valley um, out to the Gulf of California. So, yeah, there's, super a, there's, a, stuff. there's a niche entrepreneurial opportunity here, Mike. You could do no. like, forecast for bikers. So, OK, there is an app for your phone that is a wind forecast for your bike rides. Oh, but it's not very good because it doesn't use high resolution forecasts. It uses the kind of coarse grid. And I was like, oh, this is spot on, except we need to develop one just for Arizona using the WERF forecast. <laughs> because that, I looked at the WERF forecast for tomorrow. That 1.8 kilometer grid cell is like there's a gap wind that's going to be howling through uh, Tucson tomorrow. All right. Quickly, though, um, how far south do these cold incursions occur? Like we're sort of immune from them. Um, well, or, or- the reason the reason we're we're typically immune from is is that we're on the west side of the continental divide, and so most of that cold air is up in uh, it's the Great Plains of, of Canada, and it spills south and is held in check by that. Occasionally, like the really crazy cold air events, if you get the trough in the right position, and the and the cold air is deep enough, can can spread west, like our our crazy freezing event in 2011. They don't happen very often, but you need that that kind of event. But that cold air, because um, it's heavy and it's close to the ground, will go all the way down through the Gulf of Mexico and even spill down south into um, uh, the kind of northern Mexico, or I'm sorry, southern Mexico and into Central America. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, it moderate it moderates the whole time. It's getting warmer, but it is a cold, a right. cold wind out of the north. You see it in the anomaly maps, but why yeah. couldn't you have like an outbreak? Like, like, why couldn't you have a low, a lobe of cold air to our west that sort of like descends from, let's say, that you know Alaska, for example, you know, and then like butts up against you know the 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 western side of the Rockies or even like the coastal range, and then sort of like gets blocked there and, and moves down. Um, it- you t- it totally can, and it, you just mapped out exactly how it would have to happen. It has to it has to have an inland track the whole time. So it's got to come out of like Western Canada and drop straight south. It can't interact with the ocean at all because if it does, it's going to bring moisture and it's going to warm it up. If it can drop straight south and stay like in the interior, kind of in the great like drop into the Great Basin and then move south, that's how we got our our 2011 cold snap. Ah, it was, it was that there was that path, but it was actually was bigger. It was the entire like all of Canada just dropped all of its air straight south, which is why we got the cold air too. Typically, it's got a little bit of an eastern, easter, eastern, eastward um, kind of nudge to it. All right, I'm looking at the time. Um, we could probably do another hour on this, um, but David, yeah. 
anything else? So I sort of went over my, uh, hinted at a couple of my my surprises and I'll just uh, restate them. Again, it's sort of like the coherence of, you know, a, a mild winter across the West. You know, the other thing that I found really interesting um, that you sort of articulated quite well was like that we have had this El Nino background condition that has looked like an El Nino, sorry, not El Nino, La Nina. The other one, yeah. Yeah, the other one. Uh, we have had the background conditions of uh, of La Nina, but we haven't seen that expression in 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 the precipitation. So it's this nice little interplay between weather and and, and climate, and how yep. the two you have to really think about the two in 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 different ways, and they don't always align. That's right. And and particularly the other thing that we didn't mention, it's like also it's much easier in areas where you have more sensitivity to the um to, to to small changes in in rainfall like if you have low average rainfall to begin with it just doesn't take much rainfall or a few storms to sort of flip the 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 anomaly pattern so to, so to speak so it's it's like you 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 constantly have to play these games of like thinking about it in terms of climate time scales and and weather time scales and 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 just if you're looking at the expression um um it that that might give you a false idea of the background conditions that are going on. So it's important to, to look at both. So anyway, those were sort of like the two interesting slash surprise features that I was, uh, I, I was thinking about this winter. I don't know if there's any other ones that we haven't talked about or that you want to reiterate that you've been thinking about. No, I, yeah, I, th- I think we've done a good job of kind of, kind of noshing on all those kind of different things. I think that, and the discussion and maybe do a little bit of looking forward is that, the, the Climate Prediction Center seasonal outlooks have really used the La Nina signal pretty pretty persistently through the season to try to be like, well, our best guess is that it'll, it'll end up being drier than average because of the La Nina condition. And every time you look at an outlook out a couple of weeks, like there's the week three, four forecast or the, the month coming up or upcoming season, it still looks like La Nina, right? So, so you know, it's this idea that it's what you said. It's weather versus climate is that, okay. So if we start looking out at climate timescales, even as we're trying to do these forecasts, the expectation is that we'll still settle back into a La Nina pattern. But as we've seen, it doesn't always do that. So, you know, could we squeak out, you know, some more precip in February and even March? It's, it's certainly possible, but the forecasts still say, well, it'll probably fall back to La Nina, which will be drier than average conditions. Yeah. So I'm looking at the, the models behind the North American multi-model ensemble and, you know, every single one of them, um, the Canadian model, the, a few of the U S models, NASA, for example, NCAR, GFDL, NCEP, they're all, I mean, they're all that La Nina pattern, like dry Southwest, um, uh, drier than average Southwest, wetter than average Pacific Northwest. I mean, there isn't, there isn't a deviation from that. Because uh, those models don't do weather very well. Like they don't aggregate weather up very well. They, you know, they do the big, big scale stuff better than that. But to, to bring back my Texas Hold'em uh, metaphor, you know, I, I I would treat this as knowing one of your three, the cards that you're holding. One of the three cards that I don't know, I, I think I know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's a good, good analogy right there. Yeah. I think my two pair. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
it might gonna, not work. It's gonna, it's gonna beat your high kings. Yeah, it gives you an edge, right? But it doesn't mean you're gonna beat out of my element. Beat I don't somebody every time, right? <laughs> I'm a terrible poker player. Oh, I am too. I am not a good poker player. Yeah. So the MSO forecast, then, um, you know, it's um, this is a time of year where it sort of wanes um, probabilities. Uh, pick up more for neutral conditions. And then, uh, you know, we look forward to the uh, uh, fall and, 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 and winter out for, for what the next event will do. And, um, you know, it's picking up on elevated chances for, for an El Nino. Um, so that's what we've got on the horizon. Like we've always talked about, this is like a really difficult time for models to actually make these ENSO forecasts, the so-called spring predictability barrier. Um, so we don't, um necessary we wait a little bit uh mike to to put stock too much stock in that but honestly just based on sheer um sheer statistics like i'd be really surprised if we had a a fourth uh la nina in a row so um, i think everybody would be <laughs> yeah um okay so any anything else on, on 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 forecasts are you expecting uh are you expecting like the the winner to sort of uh, you know, what we have left to look more like November than it did January? Persistence forecast, maybe, you know, persistence would mean that this kind of unsettled weather pattern that comes and goes, maybe we'll still, we'll still hang on to it through March. Yeah. And we should also say, we said this many times, but that like the, the ENSO signal doesn't really show up, um, you know, for the, the Rockies, the Northern Rockies, uh, sorry, the Middle Rockies, I, sh- I should say, the Colorado, Utah, um, Wyoming a- area, um, sort of on that hinge line. So, uh, which is which I always think is a is, is, particularly in a La Nina event is a is, is good news because um, you know we want that snowpack to keep being laid um, throughout the winter. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, Fantastic, Mike. This was really fun. I can't believe it took us two and a half months to do this. Um, but really appreciate the time and really appreciate everybody who's who's paying attention and we'll get our act together and uh you know and 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 we do want to bring our, our our colleague, our still our colleague and longtime friend Ben on here to talk about all the cool stuff that he's now doing with the state of California related to climate and weather. So yeah, we'll see if we can't have a short segment of that and upcoming months, but we'll, we'll try to be more regular about this. Uh, and again, I was sincere about the offer. If anybody out there wants to uh, work with us and do a little of the production side of things, you can send Mike or I an email and uh, that's easy to find uh, uh, online. So appreciate everybody and uh, have a good rest of uh, your month. And, and until next time. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks Zach. Thanks everyone for hanging in there with us. Crap. Did I hit record? Just kidding. That's not funny, Zach. <laughs> Maybe Ben can squeak that in. <laughs> we would have to. We'd have to practice extreme Buddhist like detachment at that point. Be like, yeah. well, oh, it's a conversation. Because I think that actually went pretty well. It, yeah. it, it's one. It might not. You know, like if we can pull it off pretty regularly, it, I don't think it would require a lot of editing.